So if you look at Proverbs 4.23, it says, guard your heart with all diligence for everything you do flows from it. So when you look at art, you really can see what was in a person's heart. So when you look at, like, I like to line art up in, from the beginning to the end, so the oldest first, then you can see the worldview of that culture coming through in the art. So it takes, there's a lot of cues. And so in my classes, I teach people what the, what the clues are to look for. Welcome to Homeschool Conversations with Humility and Doxology, a series of interviews with real-life homeschool moms, dads, and other educators on all sorts of topics that affect our lives as homeschool parents. I'm Amy Sloan, a second-generation homeschool mom of five, and I am so delighted that you are here. Here on Homeschool Conversations, we'll discuss educational philosophy, family life, and more. Come chat with us. Hello, friends. Today, I am joined by Courtney Sanford. She was a graphic designer and art teacher before she had kids. Then she stayed home with her children and decided to homeschool in 2005 when it looked like they weren't really learning anything good in school. Her husband, a guy with a DIY heart, really thought they could do a better job themselves. So they threw themselves wholeheartedly into creative homeschooling. Courtney took on freelance writing and design projects within the homeschool community, and that led to writing Marvelous to Behold, a classical text for high schoolers on art history. Spending all that time looking at art inspired her to begin painting again, and she developed a course in which she taught art history and fine art skills. When the shutdown forced everyone online, Courtney took her course online and it really exploded. She formed the Delightful Art Co., which is a hub for Christian art teachers to offer classes for students of all ages. And Courtney, you and I got connected through a mutual in real life friend, and I am so delighted to get to chat with you today. So there was your official bio, but could you just tell us a little bit about yourself, your family, and kind of how you got started homeschooling? Oh, thank you. It's good to be here. Um, so let's see where, I don't know where to begin. I went to college to study graphic design because I've always had a real creative heart. Um, I, I thought I might want to be an English teacher because in high school, that's where you could be creative with your writing. You could be creative in that kind of thing. But at when I went to UNC, they were not into creative writing. They were really into you regurgitating what the teacher believed. And so that was not a good fit for me. It's not that I was a good Christian or that I was aware of indoctrination or anything like that. I just wanted to have my own thoughts. And so I transferred to um, the school design at State where they wanted you to have your own thoughts. Now they there was a little bit like we had to read the Communist Manifesto and make a poster about it. And um, I didn't pick up on that because I thought we were supposed to like satirize it. So again, not that popular, but at least I was being creative. And then um, I had some really fun creative jobs after I graduated. But when we had kids, so I married a really smart guy. That's that's one of the good, the, the important points of homeschooling. <laughs> a smart, real smart guy to start with. Uh, that's part of the success of my kids, I think, is him. Um, uh, but when we had kids, I decided to stay home. So I really loved it. But 
I, at the time, homeschooling wasn't even on my radar. I was really looking forward to dropping them off at school. And that, I kind of loved dropping the older two off and then taking the baby to Target and Starbucks. And, you know, I, I loved it until my oldest. And my oldest is a boy and he's real smart and spunky. And so um, he wasn't the teacher's favorite. Now we, we looked at public school, but I had some issues with school safety. And um, so when we, when, when he was five and it was time to take him to school, we went and looked at the school that's really just a mile from my house. And that was a big nope because there were broken windows and there was this barrel. Do you know how men like put a fire in a barrel and then they stand around it? I mean, that was going on while they watched the kids on the playground. <laughs> and I was like, how is this even possible? There's no fence that, you know, my five-year-old girl is not going to be playing in front of these men. So they've cleaned it up since, but 20 years ago, that was the situation. And so public school was a big nope for us. So we sent them to the Christian school and that was great for kindergarten, but um, they were doing a Becca, all a Becca all the time. And so if you ask the teacher, what are you doing in science? She would say page 55 and 56. Like she didn't even know what was on the workbook page. She was just handing out the worksheets and grading the worksheets. And so um, my cute little boy, James, would come home and say he didn't get to go outside for recess. And so I was like, well, why aren't you going outside for recess? It was because he didn't finish all the worksheets. And so I started meeting with the teacher and trying to figure out, well, why can my kid not stand up and go outside during the school day? And um they thought he might have ADHD, which I disagreed with, but I said, you know, I'll prove it to you. We'll go to a doctor and get an evaluation. And so we did. And he, the doctor said, no, this does, this kid does not have ADHD. He can't spell, but that's not ADHD. Um, so uh, we took that letter from the doctor and we had a meeting with the principal and the teacher. And we sat down and told him, gave him the results. And the teacher and the principal both said, well, let's put him on Ritalin anyway. And I was shocked. I'm like, okay, first of all, <laughs> here's a, a school that's professing to be a Christian school. They're claiming authority over the parents and over the physician. And so, like, that is not biblical. So <laughs> we had to get out of there for all those reasons that, you know, biblically, the parents have the authority not the teacher, not a second grade teacher. I'm not going to give her authority over my child. So that was, that was a big red flag, but I did not know what we were going to, you know, homeschooling still wasn't like something that I wanted to do. Um, I did have a neighbor who was doing it well and she was enjoying it. And so she, um, she gave me some names names of people to talk to. Of course, my husband is a DIY guy. And so he was like, yeah, let's do this. No, you've got this. You can do it. I'm like, I did not believe it myself. So I ended up at a three-day practicum where Lee Bortons was teaching math. And that math was always the thing that I hated most. And so she spent three days teaching me trigonometry. And about halfway through the second day, I called my husband. And I said, I can do trigonometry. She taught me how I can do this. Let's homeschool. And what she had done was she, she taught me trigonometry using the classical model and she broke it down. And I was able to learn something that I never understood before. And so that I was sold from that moment. I was like all in. I would just do, you know, whatever she said to do, I would do it wholeheartedly. 
And um, so that's that started our journey. And um, then my husband, uh, Lee found out my husband was in IT. And so she had him do some work for her. Eventually he became um, the, the IT guy at CC. And so that had another benefit, which is if you're at the C level in any company, you should be participating in it. And so quitting CC was never an option for us. And so we just made the best of it. And I, I saw my friends every year agonizing, oh, should we do this or something else better? And they would agonize over it all summer. I mean, like, that's not a problem for me. I don't have a choice. I'm going to do it. and I'm going to make the best of it. So that was also a blessing. So. Oh my goodness. I have so many things I want to say just from there. I think just starting with that thing at the end, you know, I think it's such a good reminder because so often homeschool parents of whatever stripe of homeschooling, you know, your philosophy or approach is, you can have this like so much pressure, like, okay, I have to pick the perfect curriculum. And if I don't pick the perfect curriculum or the perfect co-op, I'm going to ruin my children forever or whatever. You know, we really globalize and make it very melodramatic. And I think so much, one of the things I encourage moms in my, my homeschool planning ebook is just like the simple imperfect thing you do just consistently every day is better than the perfect thing that you never do. So a lot of it isn't about like picking the perfect homeschool method, the perfect homeschool curriculum. It's just sort of, okay, I'm going to stick with it. I'm going to do it faithfully. And you can actually use many different ways of homeschooling and have a wonderful homeschool experience. So I hope that's like an encouragement to people too. Like it's not just about finding the perfect, the perfect fit or something. Sometimes it's just what you can afford or it's what in your case was like part of the family business. And so you're like, okay, well, this is where God has me and I'm going to walk in faithfulness here and the Lord can bless that. And it can be a good thing. Exactly. Yeah. Also, though, I'm just like still boggled by the like, let's drug this excited little boy into submission. I'm like, no, ma'am. I know. I know. And it it was, it was kind of looking back, like I didn't, I wasn't aware of it, but just gradually over time, we saw this lively, eager to learn little boy become um, uh, down and sedentary and um, kind of depressed, you know, for a little boy. Um, and so it came on gradually. And then when we pulled him out and we started homeschooling very quickly, he returned to like being eager to learn and, um, and joyful. He's real smart. And he, you know, we just had to learn to manage that energy and, um, that school just manages that energy with drugs. Yeah. I had a little guy we would take out, we would do like, um, circles or uh, the hopscotch out on the sidewalk, chalk on the sidewalk. And we would do like math facts, like moving your body. Because sometimes you just have all this energy and you want to think, but you just need to move your body a little. Yeah. Yeah. We did lots of things like that, like math on the trampoline, or I'd call things out while you jump. Uh, You just got to recognize that's how they are and get it in there. Um, So we did not spend all, all day sitting at a desk. And uh, we learned to do it other ways, which I enjoyed too. You know, I'm like, I'm creative. I'll figure this out. I'll think of another way. And it's trial and error. Some things are too distracting and um, some some things work. Yeah. Mom is a person too. Sometimes I need my kids to just stop moving because like you're distracting me from this read aloud. It's a little too much. (laughs) Yeah, that too. (laughs) Were there any ways in which your kind of approach to education or, or thoughts about homeschooling kind of grew and changed over those years? Well, I continue to learn more and more about the, the classical model. And what I like about that is um, you memorize a lot of information 
before you really need it. So you just kind of load the brain with lots of good stuff. And then you, um, you play with the information, you sort it and organize it and you build things with it and you get creative with it. Um, and that, that helps you learn that dialectic, um, just like sorting information, that kind of thinking. And then, and then the final stage is when you expect them to do something creative back with that, either write an original paper or give a speech or teach it to somebody else or do creative writing. The modern method has that kind of flipped backwards where you expect creative writing when they're little before they've learned a lot of things. Or um, I see it in art too. In art, we often, the modern art education expects original artwork from the kids. And I even know an art teacher who won't show their kids any famous work because it might influence them. So essentially they're expecting young artists to reinvent the wheel every time. So how far are they gonna get if they start from nothing? <laughs> Not very far. So, um, so I'm a big fan of go ahead and tell them lots of information, get lots of information in their head. And then um, don't expect that creative essay or you know an original art piece until they've had lots and lots of practice with it. Hey guys, it's the holiday season and that means the opportunity to get out all of our favorite Thanksgiving and Christmas picture books. Every year, it's one of my favorite parts of the holiday season, returning to our family favorites and trying new fun titles. So we are already ready with our Thanksgiving picture books and are going to start putting some of those Christmas books on hold at the library soon. So if you would like to know some of our family favorites, you can head to humilityanddoxology.com. Um, I have a Thanksgiving book list, a free download for you there, as well as a Christmas book download. Or if you just want a really easy, clickable um, list, you can head to amazon.com slash shop slash humility and doxology. Again, that's amazon.com slash shop slash humility and doxology. And if I've left off one of your family favorites, I would love it if you would leave me a message via email or record an audio message um, and let me know what new Thanksgiving and Christmas books our family should try this year. I love that. You know, we encourage a lot of poetry and speeches and historic document um, memorization in our family's memory work. And so you know, I'll have a little one who's like reciting Death Be Not Proud by John Donne. And of course, doesn't fully understand that. But as that poem becomes a part of their of their heart when they're older and they return to that, it has so much more depth and understanding. Um, which is really a beautiful thing. Yeah, one of my favorite things was we had this um, CD with science songs in it. And so my little kids, right, as soon as they could learn to talk, they could say deoxyribonucleic acid. And I can that, barely say that. I know, it's just hilarious to see like a three-year-old tell their grandpa, you know, what is DNA? Deoxyribonucleic acid. <laughs> see their jaw drop. I know they're not supposed to be show ponies, but that is funny. And then later when they, when they get to that part in science, it's already in there. So yeah, that's a good example. Now, how, how have I evolved from that? I've gotten better at it. And I also got more laid back. 
over the years. So like the first few years, I was so enthusiastic that I really pushed the kids and, um, that comes with conflict sometimes if you have a really strong-willed kid. So my my oldest and I would sometimes clash. We'd have a battle a battle of wills. Um, and then by the third one, I was getting tired, and so the other two had worn me down, and I was a lot less. I was a lot more likely to say, "Oh, you, that's good enough. Let's move on." And so, you know, he's the baby, and. I don't know if he was taking advantage of that or not, but he turned out okay too. So, um, you know, I don't know what advice your listeners need to hear, but um, sometimes lightening up is not a bad thing. Sometimes you do need to push harder. I don't know where you are, but <laughs> it might be one or the other. You might need to push harder. You might need to lighten up. It depends on the kid and the stage you're in. That's really good advice, actually. And that takes wisdom. You know, that's where we we pray for wisdom. But and and it might depend on the day too. So if you feel like you were too hard or too easy today, you have tomorrow. So yes, there's always exactly. a new day. <laughs> and I did I did farm out a little bit more for that last one. As I got tired, um, I I put them in a couple classes that were taught by people other than me. So that was a good solution to being tired. Yeah. Make sure somebody else is strict <laughs> when you're feeling worn down. <laughs> And I actually paid someone to grade that math and that was the best money spent because I was so tired. I love it. Well, Courtney, I want to talk to you about art, but before I do that, just, I would love to hear if there are any last like favorite parts of homeschooling or maybe some challenges that you faced with homeschooling. I think my favorite part of homeschooling was having their dad involved. Um, so the best thing I think we did was that he read aloud to them every night and part of that was we were solving this problem of this wild, rowdy kid who didn't want to go to sleep. And so my husband was like, I will just read him down. I will read until he falls asleep. It turns out he can stay awake a long time. And my husband can read for a long time. And so they just plowed through tons and tons of books. And um, I really think that was probably the best education that you can give your kids. So every night he would read uh, for at least an hour aloud to the kids. And I learned to not get involved. Like, I don't pick the books. If I suggested a book that was pretty much the kiss of death, they would not want to read it. <laughs> so it was totally up to him. And so he would go to the bookstore and buy whatever he wanted. And I had to keep my mouth shut. So I remember one night I would listen. I would let him be with the kids, but I could hear from another room. And I, I also enjoyed that time to myself, knowing the kids are getting something and it's not me. So it's a nice little break, but I could hear them and he was reading. I know some people don't like Junie B. Jones because the grammar is not correct, but we thought it was hilarious. And there was this one book where she's getting, getting ready to graduate from kindergarten and they're all wearing these white graduation robes and the teacher leaves them alone in the room. And you just know Junie B. is going to do something ridiculous. And sure enough, she, so I started laughing, just knowing that it's coming. And by the time we got to the part where Junie B is coloring on everybody's robes with markers, my husband and I were crying, laughing. It was just so funny. So that was, he, he remembers that too. It's just one of our highlights is that we enjoyed school as much as the kids did. So that was fun. And then another thing we did was, um, when we were doing, um, Mid middle ages, we would say like middle ages for the whole school year. So I had two other families get involved and we decided we'd have a great big medieval feast. And um, 
the dads never heard. So three three moms planning like the food and costumes and games and stuff. And then dads go, we're going to build a real trebuchet, like real <laughs> trebuchet. So one's a builder, one is a software developer, and the other one uh, is also a builder, but he can weld. And so the three of them together built a real trebuchet. And we actually, they had like computer models because they wanted they wanted to throw pumpkins over the tree line and clear the tops of the trees and then land in the woods so they wouldn't have to clean it up. And so it was just like months and months they spent like designing the hinges and doing the physics behind it. And of course the kids are little, they didn't get involved in the physics of it, but that was so much fun. And then everybody brought their pumpkin and everybody could launch their pumpkin over the treetops and oh, that was so much fun. That was really cool. That's amazing. I want I want to now go build a trebuchet. <laughs> <laughs> yes, you will not see your husband for like uh, six weekends in a row. But yeah. Oh, that's that's awesome. Well, let's talk a little bit about art. And Courtney, I know you love art, you teach art, but can you kind of like give a picture if someone's listening and they're like, but why is art history really even important? Like, why does this matter? What would you sort of say about, yeah, the person who's just wondering whether it's even worth investing in art history? That is a great question. Um, so if you look at Proverbs 4.23, it says, guard your heart with all diligence for everything you do flows from it. So when you look at art, you really can see what was in a person's heart. So when you look at, like, I like to line art up in from the beginning to the end, so the oldest first, then you can see the worldview of that culture coming through in the art. So it takes, there's a lot of cues. And so in my classes, I teach people what the, what the clues are to look for. Um, so if you look at um, art from the Middle Ages, you've probably seen those icons where Mary is holding baby Jesus, but baby Jesus looks like an old man and he does not look like a baby. That's because at the time, the church was really de-emphasizing the idea that Christ was fully human. They wanted to emphasize the spiritual part of him, and they wanted to promote him as, um, you know, this the spiritual side of him. And they wanted to promote Mary as being the queen of heaven, so they always painted her dress as a queen would be dressed. And so that's their message, but it's also their worldview, and they really thought, drawing attention to the human body would be sinful. You know, people were going to monasteries and nunneries to get away from anything that's earthly. So they really thought earthly things were sinful and bad. And so you don't see any backgrounds in there because that would draw your attention to the earth. So um, that's how you can read worldview in the Middle Ages. And then if you look at something from the Renaissance, say like the Statue of David, the Statue of David is a man, a perfect man who's just gorgeous. And he's like 40 feet tall. Um, and it's still a biblical story. So it's still got a biblical theme, but he's portrayed man as being larger than life. And um, here's like this little guy who was able to defeat a giant. And so it's really... Um, exalting humanity and saying, isn't man great? And man can do so many things and man can defeat the big bad enemy with his bare hands. And so those are just two examples of different worldviews coming through in art. And so I think it's 
it's a really useful thing to take students through art history and show them the different worldviews and how they've changed. Sometimes one's a reaction to another, like the Renaissance came about when um, they started to realize, well, Jesus had a body and he came to earth. So how could the earth and human bodies be all bad? I mean, sure there's some sin involved, but it can't be all bad if Jesus had one, right? And so that led to um, gradually thinking, well, maybe human bodies in the earth aren't totally sinful. And so if you, worldview, I think is really, um, it comes down to two important things, how you see man and how you see God. And so when I look at a piece of art, I try to figure out how did they see God and how did they see man? And so I, I like to spend a whole year with high school students looking at art from cave paintings all the way up to today, asking these questions and then comparing to them to what we see in our culture so that um, hopefully they can start to evaluate the messages they're hearing in the culture. And then we want them to be real um, intentional about their own worldview and not just soak up whatever is around them. I love hearing how as you're studying the art and the art history, it's really connected to, it's, it's really like an idea on a canvas or an idea in a sculpture, right? We, we know the phrase like ideas have consequences. And so you're able to make this connection with the ideas that are, are going on through history, the people and the cultural shifts. And it's sort of this like tangible way to, to discuss that with, with kids. So do would you normally then study the same time period of art that you're studying in your other history studies or can it kind of you take kind of two paths at the same time um when they're little I used to like if we were studying middle ages I would concentrate on middle ages art in high school I started doing this along with a course in Western cultural history, which involved architecture and music and all types of culture. And um, I'm just, I don't understand music enough to pull that in. It's, it's a little complicated for a non-music person to understand, but visually I can see what you're talking about if you're talking about the art. And so I feel like art is a really good way to, um, to do an overview. And then I also link paintings to his, to historical events, and that helps me remember history. So, um, so yeah, with little kids, I um, I used to um, take a laundry basket to the library, and I put it on my on my calendar every two weeks. You know, we had a time that we would go to the library, and I would have like a note card of every everything that we were studying in other subjects. It was usually like you know whatever history period and what we were doing in science. And I would fill up the laundry basket. Of course, they got to pick too, but I would make sure we have something um, in all the subjects and art was always on that list. And so if I could find an art book from that period or an artist from that period, I would for sure get that. Um, if I couldn't, I would bring in something that just looked interesting to us. It might be subject matter. Like if you're studying ancient Rome, maybe it's a modern person painting a picture of Italy so there's lots of ways to connect dots for them. And then sometimes there's just the fun of a style that you want to try at home. And a lot of those art books will have an idea for trying it yourself. Like if you're looking at Monet, a lot of books will say, get some oil pastels and try it. 
And so we would always um, use the library books for that. Okay, so a mom who's listening is like, oh, this would be great. I'd love to incorporate art history in my homeschool. Um, but maybe they're like, I don't know what this looks like in real life. Can you kind of maybe give a few suggestions sort of starting like if you have younger kids, you know, middle ages and then um, like older students, what would that look like in a real, like an, a person who maybe doesn't even have an art history background, who's just trying this for the first time? Yeah, I would, I would start with library books. There are some great children's books. Um, I remember a really good one on Georgia O'Keeffe. There's a really great one on um, Giotto, and he's like transitional between Middle Ages and Renaissance. And it'll have a, a little biography of his life and show some examples of his work. And so I would definitely read aloud those books that you find. And then um, you can keep it real simple, get copy paper and pencils and um, draw some of the things that you see in the book if they're simple enough. Um, you can even trace what you see. Um, or so if you were like looking at Giotto, Giotto was famous for having drawn on rocks and he was like discovered by another artist walking through the the sheep field where he was watching, he's supposed to be watching the sheep and he saw these drawings on the rocks. So in the picture book, it, it gave a like a little cartoon example of a little boy drawing on the rocks. So immediately my creative brain goes, let's go outside and see what rocks will leave marks. And so we would, you know, gather up different kinds of rocks and we try drawing on the driveway. So that's an afternoon right there. And then um, you can also um, draw bit, draw what he drew on the rock. So it was probably something simple. And um, I would draw that for the kids and then have them draw it too, depending on the age. Um, or you could draw it and they could color it. Um, there's probably also good resources online if you search, you know, um, drawing projects for kids by Giotto. Um, and you could print off a coloring sheet. You can also use coloring sheets to draw from, so not, don't just color on it. So the li littlest kids can color the coloring sheet. Then um, if they're ready to start drawing, they can look at the coloring sheet and draw from that. And you could even put a grid on it, draw some vertical lines and some straight lines. And then you just draw what's in each cube and that helps them break it down into lines and shapes. Um, I also like the book um, Drawing with Children. That, that will break down for you how to name what you see, like if it's a circle or a line or a dot. Um, that helps you teach them to draw. And then I also love Mark Kistler. You can find Mark Kistler drawing lessons for free on YouTube, and they are so much fun. You, I actually subscribed to it, and for like a monthly fee, you get access to millions of them. And the kids just love it. You can turn it on and they can just, you know, spend 15 minutes learning how to draw a spaceship or an alien or something crazy and fun. Oh, that's or, great. I'll have to link that up in the show notes for this episode for sure. Yeah, that sounds I'm, great. Yeah, some books too. Drawing, um, Learn to Draw in 100 Easy Lessons by Mark Kistler is great. Um, so these foundational drawing skills are good for all kinds of things. It'll improve your handwriting and improves hand-eye coordination, um, and makes you more observant, those observation skills that you need if you're going to be a scientist. Um, and then, uh, so learning to draw can be related to art history, but it doesn't have to be. Um, and then as they get older, 
you can get more advanced books about the artists and just read everything about art history. And um, the library is full of great things. In fact, I think there was probably a section in the children's section on art. And you can just, you can just randomly pull a book every two weeks. <laughs> and I would just add an artist every two weeks. Do you remember thinking history was boring as you fell asleep over dry textbooks and meaningless bits of information? Have you been hearing that your children are supposed to memorize large chunks of history dates, fill out extensive timelines, or complete stacks of worksheets to prove they've really learned their history facts? Well, I'm here to tell you that it does not have to be that way in your homeschool. Homeschool history can be fun. It's not just dates and dead people. You can craft your own customized textbook-free history plan to use with many ages in a simple, fun, joyful way in your homeschool. And I have a textbook-free history masterclass to show you how. It's a 45-minute video masterclass and a 12-page e-booklet, plus I have lots of links to other resources that you may find helpful, and I share a lot of my own personal stories as a second-generation homeschool mom of five. So head over to humilityanddoxology.com shop and check out the textbook free history masterclass, and as a podcast listener, use code PODCAST for $5 off. I, that's a good reminder too, because I think sometimes we think we have to have this big, grand, glorious plan, like the whole unit study planned out with this artist and that artist and the the crafts that go along with it. And it can just be as simple as, hey, what what, what artist book do I want to get at the library this week? Hmm, this one looks interesting. And then, hey, let's go outside with the rocks. I love that. It just sort of demystifies it and also just makes it feel less stressful. Like, okay, I have to do this big, great glorious thing, you know, like art history can just be approachable and that simple. I love that. Yeah, for sure. And, well, and I would also say incorporate the element of play and discovery. Yeah. I do this with science experiments too. Give them the space to play with the stuff that you have out. And it doesn't have, so this is a big difference between crafts and art. In crafts, you're learning to follow the directions and the outcome should be exactly what you have planned. In art, it's uh, more about exploring and doing your own thing. And so if I have like, if one of those books had a craft in it, we might get out scissors and color paper and glue and we might follow the directions. But then what if I just left all that stuff out on the kitchen table and I walk out of the room? What's gonna happen? they're going to start discovering their own things and they're going to start putting things together in different ways and having a great time. And so I would totally do that with whatever art material you have, if it's chalk or paint or whatever, you might not want to leave the room, but step back and just let them explore with it. And I, I do the same with science experiments too. I remember something, this usually involves kitchen stuff. So like if you have the alcohol water thing where you you, you drop the alcohol and it pushes the water away. We do the experiment, but then I'll back off and just let them explore it themselves in their own way. And I think that that's huge. Oh, I, that's a really great idea. Really great tip. Sometimes it's good to just let them be creative and explore without us giving specific directions because sometimes that's where the real learning happens. Yeah. Yeah. And learning to follow instructions is a good thing. So you 
I'm not saying cut it all out, yeah. but realize that following directions is not going to cr- produce a creative person. It will produce a, an obedient person. But if you want someone who's going to excel, start their own business or, um, or discover new things, you want them to experience this creative, playful um, learning. Well, Courtney, you've brought up several times about how art reflects ideas. And there are some ideas that we might feel a little bit concerned about showing to our children. So I know some parents may be concerned about art that is disturbing or otherwise maybe at odds with a Christian worldview. So what does it look like to teach art history to our children wisely? And how do we kind of approach some of those more challenging or troublesome pieces of art? So that's a good question. And I can tell you a funny story. So I, I looked at um, Degas in all the children's books and I read the children's books to my kids. And then when I heard he was coming to the North Carolina Museum of Art, I was like, wait, everybody get in the car. We have the stroller. We're going to see him. We get there and it was not at all what I had seen in the children's books. This was a dirty old man and his sculptures were Horrid. And it was one of those exhibits that we had paid for and it was crowded. And I was in there with three little kids, two little kids hanging on the sides of the strollers and I could not get out fast enough. It was like this embodied parts of women and men. And I just um, couldn't get out fast enough. <laughs> excuse me, excuse me, please <laughs> get out of there. Of course, the kids didn't say anything about it. I don't know. They might not even remember it. Um, but that is the good news is that the children's books don't put that stuff in the books. So you're safe with a library book. And um, if you if you run into it in the culture, just keep moving. And they might not even, uh, it might not even register to them what it is. So I never felt like I really had to protect the kids from it. Um, just keep moving. And um, then, you know, this disturbing part of art didn't happen until after the 50s. Um, it was probably not until the 60s or the 70s, 1960 or 1970. So that is a really small amount of time in terms of all art history. And so when I am teaching this to high schoolers, I don't even have a college level course. When I'm teaching that to them, I, we, I will show it to them because, it, you know, we get to that point in history and we talk about um, what might have motivated them to create those things and it's usually that they're trying to provoke a reaction. Like in the Renaissance, they wanted the reaction of, oh, isn't that beautiful? Well, now they, any, any reaction, like, oh, that's disgusting. That's still a reaction. Um, so it's per- trying to provoke you to feel something. And they don't care whether it's a good or bad thing that you feel. And so they're just trying to be provocative and um, a lot of times it comes from a worldview that's um, postmodern, which believes whatever's true for you is true for you. And that means nothing's true. And if nothing's true, nothing is beautiful. And so they're coming from probably a very unbiblical worldview and they probably are depressed and they don't believe anything is beautiful. And so my reaction to them is bless their heart. They need, <laughs> I wish I could tell them about Jesus. And so um, that's how we react to it. And in class, we don't do that kind of art because that wouldn't come from a heart of, a, you know, someone with a biblical worldview. We wouldn't, you know, put a urinal in the art museum because that's not what's in our heart. 
So um, I think for me, it evokes sympathy. And, um, you know, I tell my students, I'm not trying to get you to go start an argument with the curator of the art museum. They're probably not in a listening space. <laughs> They're, they, you're probably not going to be successful converting that artist or those people. But it does bring me back to that proverb that we've got to guard our own heart or else we might be producing these ugly things if we don't. Well, I like the way you made that connection between truth and beauty, that you can't have beauty apart from truth. And so it really gives an opportunity to talk about, about that idea, which has value in itself as well. Well, Courtney, if someone's listening and they're feeling like really stressed out right now, they're like, I don't, I don't feel adequate to, do, to teach art history to my children. This feels like great, but I don't even, I don't even think I can do it. What encouragement or advice would you have? For that mom? Well, I for sure have an online class that you can take. I have one for parents that is, um, a lot of parents do it in the summer when their kids are off doing other things. Like if your kid goes to camp, you could, um, you could watch some of these videos and um, help you understand art history for yourself. And then I also have year-long classes for the students um, where I'm going to talk about art from a biblical worldview all year long. Um, so there's that. And then we also have courses for younger kids. And I don't really worry about the worldview and the, um, the philosophy until they get to high school. When they're younger than that, just knowing some names like Georgia O'Keeffe and trying some of the styles that they did. Um, she did great big flowers. You can see behind me. Those of you who are watching, you can see I really love Georgia O'Keeffe's style and I apply it to different types of flowers. Um, so that's one way that I just like to interact with art. I like to look at it and then I like to try it myself. And so that's all you need to do when they're little. Um, we do have, um, classes. One really popular class is, um, related to history and my daughter-in-law actually teaches it. And that's a whole nother conversation. If you want to talk about what it's like to, to have a daughter, to have your son get married. <laughs> and, um, so my daughter-in-law teaches art too, and she has a history degree. And so she teaches art skills. They read a book together. And then she, she and I together will think of an art project related to what they're reading. So like if they read Little House on the Prairie, we might do a landscape of the prairie and talk about what plants grow there and draw some of those plants in our landscape. So um, that kind of brings the book to life a little bit for them. So there's a lot of other ways you can incorporate art into what you're doing. Um, if whatever you're talking about, can you find a simple picture of it and draw it? Um, if you're doing science, do you want to draw the things that you used in your experiment as part of your lab report? Um, anytime you incorporate drawing into what other things that you're doing is going to um, really fire off lots of different connections in their brain. So it might not look amazing. It might just look like scribbly, scrabbly stuff to you. But in their heads, they're making all kinds of connections. You're using their creative brain to process their science or their history or something else. Um, another thing I like to do is read a poem and then draw the things that were in the poem. So if I read um, uh, Rossetti's poem, Brown and Furry, Caterpillar in a Hurry, Take Your Walk to the Shady Leafer Strock. Um, then we go to draw caterpillars, or you can even make a caterpillar craft and keep reciting the poem. That's going to fire off all different kinds of uh, connections in their brain. So it's really good for their, for their little brains. 
Oh, that is really fun. I love that idea of of incorporating it with with poetry study as well, since poetry and poetry memory work is such a huge part of my homeschool. I haven't really thought about trying to bring some drawing in, but I have some kids, I think, who would really enjoy doing some art associated with their poetry. So I'm going to keep that in mind for next school year. You know what? I have a book in which, so I had, I had trouble too keep doing it consistently. And so I wrote a book where you, for 12 lessons, no, it's 12 a semester. So it's 24 poems. And after each poem, I've given you some ideas for an art experience after the poem. One of those is the caterpillar. And then I teach you how to draw a caterpillar. So okay. that is so fun. You'll have to send me the link to that and I'll put it in the show notes. That is awesome. I love it. It's really fun. And, um, and then you can use the poem for copy work and for memorization. And they're mostly fun. You know, I include Jabberwocky um, and some fun things like that. So that's one of my favorite things because it's something I wanted to do with my own children, but I had a really hard time sticking to a schedule. Like I would do two or three and then forget about it. And so I thought, well, this, you know, if I had a book that I did once a week throughout the school year, I might develop the habit. So I hope that that is helpful. Courtney, this has been great. I'm so glad to have gotten a chance to chat with you here at the end. I'm going to ask you the questions I ask all my guests. And so the first is just, what are you personally reading these days? I am reading Nancy Piercy's book, Love Thy Body. She has a newer one out, but I'm like one behind. Um, so I'm really enjoying hearing her. She was a... Um, I want to say a disciple. She was a student of um, Francis Schaeffer, and Francis Schaeffer is one of my heroes. He wrote "How Shall We Then Live," which is how to how a Christian should interact with the arts. Um, so she's like second generation, <laughs> and so I just I hang on every word that she writes. So that's my um, that's the book I read when I'm like awake and I have some brain power left, <laughs> and then I usually have a, a historical fiction novel. And so I bought several. When I went to Italy this past March, I took a group of college students to Italy and we stayed in Florence for a week. So I bought several books and I'm going through them very slowly. So right now I'm reading The Bookseller of Florence. Um, and it is very interesting. And now that I've been there, I can picture it and I know what it looked like. So, um, so that's really, um, that's just for fun, really. And then I've, I think I mentioned, um, I'm on the board of directors for a, a Christian youth theater. And so I'm reading um, more, and well, and as my business grows, I'm reading more and more books about business things and the Christian workplace. And so I'm reading the six types of working genius. And um, that's really, um, that's a fun read to think about how, um, how you can see different people's talents and, and use them in the workplace. Although as homeschool moms, we've been doing this for years, you know, seeing drawing out your one kid's talents and, and helping them pursue the things that they love and the things that they're good at. So it's not brand new information, but it's helpful to, to think about in a different way. I tell you, if homeschool moms wanted to, once our kids left home, we could take over the world. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm in the, my, so my friends are, are, empty nesters and a lot of us are starting our own businesses and it's really exciting to see where people uh where we go now that because once you get up to speed you can't stop and so I'm still going full speed ahead just like I was when I had um two high schoolers so um I've just kind of narrowed, narrowed down I don't have to do math and science anymore I can just focus on art and that's been really great I love it 
Well, what would be your best tip for helping the homeschool day run more smoothly? I think the best thing that I did for for everybody's mental health was I made my schedule. Well, first thing, I killed the TV. That was probably the best thing that I did. Um, I, I don't know that it was intentional. We just didn't have one. And that's why we never got one. So if you don't have a TV, that is going to really help. And um, then the second thing that I did was in my planning, I always didn't... Um, I set aside an hour and a half for math. It should only take an hour. And so if they finish in an hour, I would let them go outside and run around for half an hour. Mm -hmm. um, so that's a bonus to them, a, a reward, but it also pays back in that after they run around, they can focus again. Um, and then if they drag their feet and they don't get it done for an hour and a half, I don't stress out. I know that I had that time anyway, and so we're still on schedule. So that was probably the smartest thing I did the whole time. And then that just sets your day off really well. If they need an hour and a half to get through their math, that's not a big deal. Yeah. Um, and then usually, usually I would end up with like 20 minutes break too. So I'd have another cup of coffee while they were outside. I love it. Brilliant. <laughs> As a sneaky mom tip. Yes. <laughs> yeah. They did not know that. An hour and a half is fine with me. Yeah. They knew the goal was an hour and then they could play. So, yeah. I love it. Well, Courtney, where can people find you and your art resources all around the internet? We are at www.delightfulartco.com. So Delightful Art Company, but we shortened it to co. Perfect. And I will have that link in the show notes for this episode, along with the other things we've talked about. I'm over at humilityanddoxology.com. Thank you so much, Courtney. Thank you. Thanks for listening in on this week's Homeschool Conversation. For show notes and links to all the resources we discussed, head to humilityanddoxology.com slash homeschool-conversations. And if these episodes are an encouragement to you, would you take a moment to leave a rating and review and to share with your friends? I am so thankful that you are here on this adventure with me. Let's repent of our constant striving, relish the joy of learning, and rest in the work of Christ on our behalf. Stand fast, my friends.